Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Matt Radelak, Mike Buckby, and Killian Engler. The New York Times recently did a feature story on a computer scientist, Dr. Donald Nuth, which they said he sort of resembles Yoda and how he wrote the Bible of computer programming. And he equates a lot of programming to poetry and art. He lives in a world where optimization is considered an artistic masterpiece. However, there's a Nunthian proverb quote where premature optimization is the root of all evil. Did that quote proverb make you pause? And what did you think about that? Hi, this is Mike Buckby. You know, we're talking about Donald Knuth, but there's a really great story about him and Doug McElroy, where they were both tasked with creating like a word count program. And Knuth's implementation was this very, what's called a literate program that it's, you know, very elegantly designed and does all this you know, in a very comprehensive way. And McElroy's solution was like a six line shell script that he slammed together. And then the rest of the time was spent talking about like, you know, so much of this is about choosing the right tools for the right problems for, you know, trying to fit the right thing in. And, you know, especially in security, a theme of the show that we talk about a lot is you need to not try to do everything yourself, that you need to rely on the frameworks. You need to rely on the greater community to help with a lot of the implementations of this. Like you shouldn't like implement everything from scratch because you think SSL is kind of slow. Like You shouldn't come up with your, your new encryption setup. So like everything, there's good and bad to it. It's Matt Radley. What it made me think about was is the idea that if you don't fully think something through and you try to make the best of it or try to make it, you might miss something. I think that today's society is about being first more so than being the best. And I, and I think that we see that like time and time and again, you know, look at cell phones, computers, consumer goods. It's about who gets, you know, gets to the market first more so than who had the most well thought out and perfectly executed solution. So I don't I don't think that we're in that art of really thinking things through. I think we're we're not following Master Yoda's guidance in this case. And the idea that, you know, you have to constantly question yourself and and that's what you get into about the volumes of books that he publishes on computer programming. The big thing is that it's the comprehensive guide to computer programming. There's no logical fallacies that's written in the volume. In fact that he'll pay you if you can challenge him and, and get something out of it. And I, and I think that's the uniqueness of the opinion is just that there is a level of artistic expression to it that requires you to think, you know, outside the box, try to future proof what you do, try to draw on the past. And I think that it's really special. You know, I think that this this person is brilliant. You know, it's one of the, the gifted minds of our time. Hi, this is Killian. If you kind of look at it, kind of slowing down, taking the pace, looking at what you're doing, observing it is the antithesis of almost, you know, our daily lives anymore. It's faster, get it done, turn it around, get it out there, we'll patch it later. And I think that kind of introspective look at it is maybe, I wouldn't say a lost art, but I think it's difficult to balance, you know, with the modern demands of the always changing society. So it's very interesting to to look at that. And I think I would agree with the quote that it's it can lead you down the wrong path very easily. So you need to have that introspection. Yeah, I think I think there is a way that we can reconcile some of that kind of between Matt, that kind of rush to be first versus mics don't reinvent the wheel. If we focus on the core, making those shared libraries, you know, thinking through the end, making them very pointed to do the thing that they're supposed to do and doing it elegantly and building on top of that, at least to have a solid foundation. It's not the panacea, but it goes maybe some way to achieving both ends. Thanks, guys. If you're a regular listener and enjoy your show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show. It helps them discover tech security podcasts like ours. So while Dr. Nuth is now 80 and we reflected on some of his work, meanwhile, email is about 50 years old and by 2017, on average per day, 296 billion 
emails get sent. And I want to reflect on that number. And there's the author who wrote about how email hasn't evolved. I feel like, did we just put out email first and just let it run? And now we have all these vulnerabilities that we haven't fixed and maybe people don't see a need to fix it. He listed out some serious vulnerabilities and offered a few solutions, implementing more factors of authentication, using a VPN. How do you feel like we should evolve email and some of the vulnerabilities and solutions he suggested? I think there's two levels here. One is sort of the message as a message security versus, you know, the meta security. And the message security is that, you know, what's inside of the actual email is encrypted and can't be read. And there's still not a great standard for that. And then separate from that is all the meta of like, who are you actually emailing with? You know, is that private? Is that, you know, of concern? And, you know, we even see things like there was a recent thing about the Treasury Department and they were communicating with, you know, foreign interests over Gmail accounts. Like, obviously that's a red flag. Whatever was in the actual email is still, you know, a separate issue from the fact that that was the the communications medium and the, the place it was going. So I think whatever we talk about, I think needs to be couched in those two different, you know, buckets of concerns. Well, if you even look at it too, kind of addressing Cindy's first point is that email has been around so long that it, no one ever thought of it in this way. Like think about, you know, DNS or routing we talked about a couple weeks ago. Nobody ever thought about security when they set up the systems. And it's one of those things that we're kind of stuck with in a lot of ways. Now, there are some things that we can do, as Mike mentioned, to to address it, but it's all bolting on. I don't think at this point anybody's going to radically reinvent the concept of communication. Maybe messaging apps have done it to a certain extent, but it certainly hasn't diminished the use of email either. So I thought that some of the way this article was written is a bit narrow in the sense that we talk about email and how it's like the only thing, but what medium are we communicating on right now? I mean, originally when email was when it first came out, it was it was expensive to be on the phone for this long and to have conference calls and to have a thousand people on a webinar on a Zoom meeting. Like the, the, those things would have been taken a lot of, of manpower and effort. And so I think we've started to communicate in other ways. The other thing is that how much of that is spam, right? How much of that email is noise? I think that's a bigger problem more so than email security is just, you know, getting the right information to the right people instead of overwhelming people with information, which is, I think, the, the weakest, the most the, the most exploited vulnerability of all of email. But in terms of security, I mean, there are secure options available. You can get, you know, like government systems that use PIV cards plus passwords to encrypt messages where you have to, even if you intercept that encrypted message in transit, or even if you compromise that TLS link, right, that message is still encrypted on top of that. So the only thing you're going to grab is the header information out of the packet of the email and not actually the content of the message at all. And and so I think there are ways they're not massively adopted. They're not for the common person yet, but there are definitely ways to secure email. And I, I don't think there's a need to, to get rid of it. I think mail is a, a concept of, you know, sending someone a message for them to read. And I think that until we start talking about communication over a different medium, you know, there's not really a, a need to replace email. I don't know if it's replace it. I almost feel like we need to protect it. I think almost everything else you mentioned, Matt, is a proprietary corporate owned communications medium. And there's not a standard across all the different email providers and clients and setups in the same way there is, you know, for, you know, some of these other things. And I think that's a real shame because having these very broad open standards makes it much easier for, you know, for everybody, for just basic communications. All of us, I think, have suffered through the, hey, which uh, setup are we going to use for the conference call? Zoom, Appearin, Blue Jeans, who knows what? And it's a disaster every time. <laughs> but there's no question with email, like, oh yeah, email is going to work. And so I see it as, you know, modernizing it with security to protect 
and make sure we can still continue using it going forward. In an effort to put out ideas, you know, maybe one will pick up, how would you build in the security on top of it? What's, you know, what's maybe one thing that, that you would like to add or, or change or hope somebody could adopt? You know, what's, what's your suggestion to make it better, I guess? Implementing the PIV system at a worldwide level, like having our driver's license have our email encryption keys on them. I think that would be great. I mean, I think if we had a more trusted key certificate system, that could help with authentication to every to your bank. You know, it would be the fact that this, this driver's license was your encryption key. It was something that plus your password got you access to things. It could be make things very streamlined and very convenient. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, you know, have the government control yet another thing and regulate yet another thing. If, if implemented properly, would be very secure. I mean, it would offer people true privacy in the sense of knowing their messages would only be re- read by the re- their actual recipients. That's um, actually, it's interesting you brought that up. I was kind of working along the same lines too, is, you know, for your Gmail account or whoever, let's say Google for everybody who had an account, you know, their account was tied to um, an asymmetric uh, encryption key. So you have your public and, public and private key. So if I wanted to email Mike, building in a system where I would just get his public key to encrypt the message so only he can decrypt it, you'd have a decentralized uh, authority. But if everybody was at least using the same protocols um, or encryption standards, could work. But like all, we're talking about a variety of different threats and then a variety of different solutions to those threats. So we've seen in the last couple of years, a huge increase in the TLS SSL on websites with Let's Encrypt. And there is, you know, I think a trailing amount of that happening on the email side as well, where even for your Apple mail that you have on your your Mac or whatever, connecting to Gmail, there's options that you can use encryption for that. So at least, you know, as the communication goes back and forth between your machine and, you know, the server, the information's encrypted. And that's a great start. It doesn't have to be solved in one fell swoop. It's okay to take chunks out of it. But I think that would be like mandating that that's the case for all the communications would be a great start. Mike, you're wrong. It's the end of 2018 here. I want this email thing done. You know, we got new problems to tackle in 2019. As we talk about email security, there's also data security that also really drove our news headlines this year. But I really like the story of Chris Vickery. He's responsible for finding leaked data before the bad guys do. And when he finds an exposed database, he responsibly discloses to the company and then hopefully they'll seal the leak before cyber criminal can steal the data. And his story also reminds me of Troy Hunt, where he really says, you do not want me to be your data breach alert. And I just wanted to hear thoughts on his feature. And while I think it's great that he's helping companies figure out that their data leaks, that he really shouldn't be doing that. They should really have real-time alerts for these things. What's the disconnect? Well, I think it's separate. That is not that he shouldn't be doing this, which I don't think is quite what you're saying. I think it was that you shouldn't have to rely on Chris Vickery or, you know, have I been pwned to find out that, gee, we had a horrible problem six months ago. And, you know, there's always going to be room for error. Even in the, a data breach could be as simple as, you know, someone has a spreadsheet up on their computer, they pull out their cell phone, take a picture of it, and then and then post it on Twitter. Like, that's technically a data breach. So it's never going to be a case where it's 100% locked down in all cases. All you can do is keep taking steps, keep plugging up holes, keep making more and more layers to protect what's there. And I think that is where the disconnect still happens, is that there just isn't enough done. And I think, Cindy, you really hit this in your framing of this, where you said it's data security. It's not, you know, all these other types of security approaches. I think, I mean, shocking for the show, I think I'm going to agree with Mike, but this really comes down to one of those, despite your best efforts, you don't know what you don't know. I guess it's reassuring in some ways that, you know, good guys out there doing this, because, you know, this is exactly what the the attackers 
founders are doing. This is you know a lot of low-hanging fruit, and it's really easy anymore, especially as we move more things to the cloud and the configuration options get more robust and more vast. You know, to check a box or not fully understand or make that fat finger, that's going to expose some of your data. And I I think the the biggest thing that I took away from this is that organizations need to be receptive of, of this information. He said some of the time, you know, things go great. They're like, oh, great, thank you. You know, you helped us out. But there are still organizations, and nobody likes to have their flaws pointed out. It's not a personal attack, I don't think. But if somebody that's trying to help you identifies this, just like a bug bounty or something, it would behoove you to listen before it's too late. This is one of those things, ethically speaking, right? Like you're, you know, the person's violating the law to do what he's doing, and yet there's no, you know, faces no penalty, which is, you know, like computer fraud and abuse that comes to mind. But at the same time, you know, I think to answer your question, I think the reason that this doesn't, you know, happen or people don't discover this on their own is because uh, there's a shortage of skilled IT security professionals. And there aren't many people like the Aaron Turners of the world or like other, you know, big name security experts who are capable of thinking through all of these different attack scenarios and vulnerabilities and patches that, you know, corporations need to apply. And so in the absence of that, you know, I, I personally, you know, I, I see why he's doing it. I, I think he's doing good for the world. You know, it's kind of like a superhero role. Well, and to be clear here, he's not actually breaking into systems and finding he's not like a vulnerability reporter or security researcher. He's just looking basically on the internet and saying like, oh, someone's saying that this, you know, data set is from, you know, XYZ company. And then he calls up that company and says like, hey, just want to let you know that I was just going about my business, found this thing here. So to me, it's even like one step removed from the ethical hacking types of scenarios where to me, this is like very clearly white hat. <laughs> this is, it, I don't think it gets much purer than this. I mean, it's even as easy as if you know the, you know, how to do some Google search Kung Fu or use a showdown search engine for this type of thing. It's it's just out there. It's indexable. It's not hidden. There's no you know cracking or uh, exploits needed. Yeah, Killian said something earlier about businesses not taking these notifications as seriously as he would like. It sort of segues to some research that Brian Krebs did where he looked at the top 100 companies and only 5% of these top 100 firms listed a chief information security officer or a chief security officer. And it's not that these companies don't have CISOs, but they're not publishing or recognizing the work that they do for the company. And it speaks volumes. You know, if you share that you have a chief marketing officer, who's more important? They're equally important, but why isn't a CISO on there? How does this research that Brian Krebs did inform you of how security is valued? Or perhaps maybe that's why breaches happen. Having been on the side of, of working for, for CISOs in the past and hearing about you know the transition into an executive role, I think the first barrier to entry is that the CISOs don't feel welcome at the table. Like from a high-level executive standpoint, it's another technology person at the table on top of possibly a CIO and a CTO. And so I don't think executive boards are aiming to get bigger and have more executives and more decision makers in an already competitive and crowded space. And I think that's like the, the forefront of the problem. That, and I think the secondary thing is the value of their role. And I think the organizations that do put a CISO at that table probably do realize the benefits of on, of thinking through their decisions with risk in mind and trying to weigh the costs and benefits associated with things. But again, from the flip side, uh, their peers on that same executive board look at security as a cost center only. What, what does security bring to the business besides risk mitigation and costs? Often it's not savings or efficiencies or you know operational effectiveness. It's purely a cost center. Can we talk about the bigger issue here, which is that I think we're pronouncing either CISO or CISO. And I think we should just decide on 
on one and just go with that from here on out. I'd say it's interchangeable, like tomato, tomato, personally. Tomaso, tomiso. (laughs) It is a cost center. I don't know any way around it that it's not a cost center. And I think it's hard to be strategic about it. None of which says it's not important. In the same way that like, you know, if your building burned down your headquarters and, you know, you didn't have a contingency plan, that's a horrible risk. And this is a much more likely scenario that there's going to be a horrific data breach that costs the company a, a huge chunk of its value. Maybe it's a permanent kind of stain upon it that really changes the course of the company. Like those are real things. And it's something that needs to be just interwoven throughout all of the different practices of the firm. And I think when you get away from that is when you really have issues, when you start having like, you know, the article describes it as silos. And I think that's really the case. When you have silos and bad practices and things where, you know, it's just not considered, it's going to be a problem. To expand on that, where you have conflict of interest is where there's really a problem. And I think that's the struggle a lot of CISOs who aren't on that board have is because they report into a CIO and feel that because of that, there's a conflict of interest because the CIO's priorities are not the same necessarily as a CISO's priorities. You know, a CIO may make a decision for availability or usability that a CISO is recommending against. And so it creates a conflict of interest if the CISO is managed by the CIO. Yeah, I'm just curious. Like, do you have an example of that? Just a- Oh, I, I'm, I think that's very commonplace. In terms of like the organizations that we do business with, you know, I'm involved a lot with the Verona sales team as a, you know, as just a support as like an executive speaker. Oftentimes when we are meeting with a CISO who's very interested in our software platform, you know, he'll say that the CIO is the purchase authority and that he seemingly recommends products. And that's a very common play for us. This is something that, I mean, our, I would say across the company, it's probably happening every week where we're running into a CISO that reports to a CIO and is unable to execute on security initiatives without the CIO's approval. And it's normal to have to get executive approval, but if you were a CISO, if you were an executive of your own division, you'd have your own budget and would likely only need to get you know a finance type level approval to spend that budget. I'm not disagreeing about any of that. I guess I'm really curious about what you see as the conflict of interest between what the chief information officer is going for, like an example of that. So it might be like, oh, we really like this application. We think it'll help the sales teams. We think it'll help customer service and we'll be 25% more efficient. I'll give you an example. The cloud is a great example. Certain cloud software as a service companies have no security programs at all, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're fresh out of Silicon Valley. They just got venture capital funding. Maybe they say they encrypt their data on disk, but in terms of what you would expect for a place you're going to store your most sensitive information, you know, they don't meet your requirements, but the CIO wants whatever cool thing is associated with this software and could overrule the CISO, even though they're putting the data at what the CISO feels is an unnecessary risk. I mean, this is the challenge that every one of our listeners has probably dealt with at some point where they have a technology executive who wants to do something for usability and functionality that is theoretically could be detrimental to security. I'm sure that that those kind of things happen all the time. Whereas if you put the CISO on an equal playing field with the CIO, then it becomes the need for either some type of, you know, like a vote or a board to convene, but it isn't just one person outruling the other anymore. I like that. And I like how you're framing the structure of it, where in terms of like influence of the entire company, as a follow-up to this research, I wonder if we could do something like chart which of these companies had significant data breach and then look at them a year later and see if the corporate structure has changed to where there was a seat at the table for the, the CISO or CISO, whatever, you know, I'm open to it. 2018, give me these terms. The other thing, I, and again, this is a little bit off topic, but on the same thing is I ventured down into the comments of the article, which is my own fault for, you know, getting down there. Rookie mistake, Killian. Rookie mistake. The retrieve of uh, scum and villainy. But the one thing that a couple people pointed out is that people in the comments claim to being CISOs or CISOs or CISOs, however you want to pronounce it, whatever. We're like, well, we deliberately go out of our way to 
to not be published online for our own personal security reasons. People, you know, said that, hey, we could be targets. It could reveal our network of connections and, and some other stuff like that, which I thought was interesting, at least conceptually. What do you guys think of that? Their claim is that this puts a target on their back. It gives an attacker another point to go after to undermine them. I mean, I think I could call the front desk and get the name of the CISO or get transferred to the CISO's voicemail pretty easily. I mean, I think that's a bit of a stretch if you ask me. Well, I was going to say, it's not like any of the other people in the company are not also targets at the executive level. And in terms of role, probably less well-equipped to deal with these kind of threats, at least hopefully. That's kind of the opinion that I came to as well, too. But I thought it was an interesting defense, I guess, for them. And I saw a number of comments that said, well, security through obscurity is not security at all, which is... I want to imposition what Matt said earlier about the conflict between a CIO and a CISO. I mean, in general, companies clearly value technology. Today, no one can function without emails, internet. And one company clearly took advantage of it where they disabled the internet connections of customers in Utah and then allowed them back online only after they agreed to purchase their software. And then some were worried that they were redirected to a malicious site. And But then once he clicked OK, the internet came back on. And I felt like that's a pretty sick joke. Is it the CISO's fault, the CIO's fault, the marketing people's fault, the salespeople's fault? I probably would have, if this would have happened to me, I would have been so furious. I mean, like, what if we were doing this podcast right now and our ISP in Utah decided to cut off our internet connection until we hit accept on a splash page. I mean, I could think of all of the ways that that would negatively impact a person's, you know, livelihood besides the inconvenience of it all. And I think it sets a tone that this service that we're providing you, we could sort of, you know, inject whatever kind of content that we want into it. And I, I don't like the precedent that this sets. I personally, this would probably make me so upset if there was another service provider available, I would probably switch. Yeah, that's the most interesting thing I thought when I read this article is that, it, well, first off, it was, a, it was a gross misinterpretation of a law that they passed. The law said, hey, you have to notify your customers that as a provider, you need to offer some type of service that can filter whatever content protect kids online, like filter inappropriate content. And everybody else apparently in the article, the other people providing it, like sent out emails or, or letters in the in the bill or physical letters that, without the bill saying, hey, this is something that we offer. They were the only ones that took this kind of drastic approach. And it just goes to show, I think this gets to the heart of what Matt said, is that how much of our digital lives are under the influence of somebody else. We rely on them and we just kind of expect and trust them to you know do the right thing. And I'm using air quotes with my hands, but it's very easy for them to maybe take advantage. In this case, it wasn't exploitive, but injecting their own ads or injecting things or directing them somewhere else that benefits them. So, you know, at least making them aware, but hey, only showing ads for their own products, again, injecting that into the data stream, cutting off your access if they don't happen to like something you're doing or websites you're visiting or something like that. It's scary to think that these businesses kind of arbitrarily can do this. This is both a less and a more situation for me. So I've actually had this happen to me with my local internet service provider where they had some sort of update message and it was implemented, I think, the same way, which is that this is almost like, you know, you go to a hotel and they have the capture page for the Wi-Fi where you have to log in. And this is very similar to that, where until you log in, everything is messed up. And of course, you know, I was using like 1.1.1.1 for my DNS instead of, you know, whatever the default was. So it was screwed up in such a way I didn't get the page. And so it was only like we found out like later. And so I like lost my internet for like half a day because I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so this is a real thing, but it's of a piece with lots of other stuff that's been happening. Like, you know, a very common thing for many ISPs is that they monetize uh, 
404s that if you like type in like some random messed up URL, it goes to a page that has ads <laughs> that, you know, has been redirected to something else. And, you know, the ISP makes money off those ads. So they try to guess what you were trying to find or the ISPs are doing traffic shaping and they're like, well, watching a little too much Netflix. We're going to throttle down your connection till the end of the month. So I think the real solution to this is, is more competition because Matt, I'm with you. I would switch if I could, but I can't. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, this is, this is, we had to speak, we had to vote with our dollars, but where, where there's a monopoly, it's almost impossible or there's a monopoly on a particular class of service. But I think we'll see more competition. I mean, Google Fiber is starting to challenge the Comcast and Spectrums of the world. So, you know, I think it's only a matter of time. I'm waiting for the blimps that uh, have, you know, awesome ISP level access that I can just like connect to from anywhere. Yeah. Or WiMAX to be widely available. That'd be so cool. Yeah. That's my Christmas wish. We don't have much time left for Santa to bring me a giant blimp full of internet, but you know, here's hoping. Make sure you ask Elon Musk. If anybody can do it, it'd probably be him. I don't know. I heard about his tunnel. It didn't go. The initial one didn't go so well. So if that's not doing great, I don't know if we can get the blimp off in time. We'll just give him a call, right? Or shoot him a tweet, see what he says. Be like, hey, bring a blimp by. We'll go on. Hey, it's, it's Mike at Veronis. Just wondering if you could put the internet in a blimp and make it available to all. It seems reasonable. You know, I've, Thanks, I've been Elon. a good boy this year. Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's not like he has anything else better to do. No. Do we have a tool of the week? No. Because <laughs> I forgot about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> see, I Matt with us, who we don't normally have, I think Matt should pitch uh, the cybersecurity workshop. I agree. Yeah. I think that they should go to veronis.com and they should click on our banner ad about the cybersecurity workshop and learn from real security analysts about how cyber attacks happen and how you can detect and investigate those attacks and the power of security analytics. Well, why is Veronis the best then? I can learn somewhere else. You could certainly learn in other places. The beauty of learning from us is we're a data-centric security company. So we have a, a perspective of looking at you know users and computers and the perimeter and tying it all together. And whether they choose to you know eventually try our software or just be educated through our demos, I, I think that it would be a worthwhile endeavor. And I want to make something clear here because you gave a very, I think, slick practice pitch for that. But I know we have a lot of IT people who listen to us or maybe not security professionals. And the workshop is really great because in large part, it's a real actual attack, like how you would actually use the attacking tools, actual vulnerabilities, and really ties all that together in a real world way that is hard to see in a lot of places. Like there's a lot of talk about tools, but there's not a lot of tying them all together into like sort of an attack stack of like, oh, here's how it was exploited. Here's how the escalation happens. Here's how the compromise happens. Here's the result. So I think it's just, it's very hard for me to imagine that there's anyone who was listening to this that couldn't get something out of taking, you know, it's short. It's like half an hour, right? All together. All together. Yeah. And then there's the Q&A, which you have to stay for. Yeah. So it's very hard to think that anyone like wouldn't get something really solid out of for such a small amount of time. So I really encourage people to, to go check it out. Yeah. You just go to Veronis.com and it's a banner at the top, like saying. Do you get a CPE? You do get a CPE. Yep. Woohoo. CPEs for everybody. It is Christmas. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Matt Radelak, Killian Engler, Mike Buckby, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like we had today. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Cindy. Great host. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>